0: Section twenty four of Why Do We Need a Public Library? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Why Do We Need a Public Library by Various. How to Use a Library by James Mascarene Hubbard. The substance of two addresses made at Pittsfield, Mass and printed in the Library Journal for February 1884. Mr. Hubbard's advice with regard to children's reading was followed long ago by specialization in work with children. That, with regard to adult fiction, remains unheeded. day, possibly, we shall have adults librarians and training for work with adults. James Mascarene Hubbard was born in Boston in eighteen thirty six. He was made assistant librarian of the Boston Public Library in eighteen eighty four and also reorganized the Berkshire Athenaeum of Pittsfield Mass in the same year. Among all the pictures of Abraham Lincoln, none perhaps are more interesting than two which represent scenes at the beginning and at the end of his life. In the first, a lad of thirteen or fourteen, he is reading by the light of a fire in his father's log hut. In the second, he is reading the Bible to his sons in a room in the White House. This Bible, which lies before the President in the latter picture, with a catechism and a spelling-book, were the only books in that frontier cabin when he learned to read. Though his father could neither read nor write, yet he took the greatest interest in getting books for his son, so that when he was eighteen his library consisted of the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, Aesop's Fables, Weems and Ramsay's Lives of Washington, a life of clay, the autobiography of Franklin, and a copy of Plutarch. It is noteworthy that the one which influenced him the most strongly after the Bible was the life of Washington. At the very crisis of his career, when on his way to the national capital to take the leading part in crushing out the rebellion, He reverted to those early days, and recalled the burning thoughts which filled his mind while reading of the sufferings and sacrifices endured for the sake of freedom by the great patriot leader and his followers. Lincoln's experience was of course no solitary one, but it doubtless had a great effect when it became generally known. It filled many men's imaginations with pictures of obscure lads with latent powers for noble deeds, in danger of being stunted or wholly destroyed for want of proper nourishment. And they gave freely and generously that these village Hamptons—these hearts, pregnant with sacred fire—might not live useless and ignoble lives for want of books alone. Hence to-day, a large section of our country is dotted over with libraries, in which the collective wisdom and experience of the world, as it were, are gathered for the use, especially, of the youth of the nation. But, as is inevitable with the blessing of abundance, has come its danger also. Lincoln's naturally great intellectual powers were strengthened by their being at first exercised upon a few subjects. The possession of a book, being an era in his early life from its rarity, he read and reread each one which he got, so as almost to learn it by heart before he read another. So the vivid impressions received from the lives of Washington and the other great heroes of history ran no risk of being dissipated before they could have their full effect upon his mind and heart. This, however, is our danger, in this day of public libraries and cheap literature, that the mental strength of our youth will be weakened through the too-much reading of a multitude of books as the waters of a brook when confined to a narrow channel may have power enough to set in motion a thousand spindles, but, if suffered to spread over the ground, are not able to turn a child's toy wheel, so with the powers of the mind. When directed to a few objects, they may be capable of the greatest and most beneficent results, but when allowed to exhaust themselves upon a multitude, they are in danger of becoming sterile and unfruitful. With Lincoln, then, and with many a frontier and backwoods boy now, the question was and is, how shall I get a book? With a greater number to-day, however, the more important question is, which book shall I choose? Before attempting to aid anyone to answer this question for himself, let me briefly advert to the fact that there are two kinds of reading for each of us, and two corresponding uses, therefore, of the library, the reading for amusement and the reading for profit. In regard to the former I can say but a word, as it is a subject by itself. And that word is, let this reading be the best possible, and do not let it occupy too much of your spare time. Books read simply for amusement have on most a greater power to elevate or degrade than any others, and more care should be taken in selecting them than in the choice of those to be read for instruction. Read then, and put into the hands of the young the best fiction and shun those writers, whatever their power or their popularity, who reproduce in their books the slang and vulgar speech of the streets, and paint realistic scenes of vice and crime. The answer to the question, how or what shall I read, must necessarily be as varied as the tastes, the talents, and the circumstances of readers vary. The general aim, however, should be the same in all. We should read, in order to do well, whatever we have to do in life. Now this implies something more than the reading simply to increase one's knowledge, certainly a worthy aim, but not the highest. The field of knowledge is so broad, and the time for reading so short, that we must necessarily choose those subjects the knowledge of which will make us better fitted for our work in life. And the mere seeking for knowledge which is the sole end of much reading, does not imply, but may even prevent, the attaining that higher end the cultivation of our nobler powers as the imagination and the sympathies, and the gaining the power of appreciating what is highest and best in literature and life. For instance, one may be conscious of a total lack of love for any great writer. To him, Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, Milton and their peers are but names. Now it may be that the best use to which such an one can put a library is to make at least the attempt to understand and enjoy some great author. It will be no easy task, but one needing and worthy the hardest study. To take, as an illustration of one method, a lesser poet, read carefully and thoughtfully Matthew Arnold's introduction to his edition of the selected poems of Wordsworth. Whenever he refers to a poem, read it before going farther, and reread it, until the thought of the poet as indicated by the commentator is reasonably clear. Then read, in the same manner, what Coleridge, sharp, F. W. Robertson, or any other good critic has written upon Wordsworth. And above all, sometimes read the poems as nearly as possible in the same circumstances under which they were written—in the forest, by the brookside, in the solitudes of the mountains, or on a bridge in the heart of a great city. If this fail to awaken an interest in Wordsworth, try some other author in a similar way. And it is impossible that of all who have stirred men's hearts through the ages no one can be found to arouse your sympathies. And when the right author is at length found, you live on a higher plane than before. This great poet, philosopher, or dramatist, has become your friend and familiar companion, a gain far greater than the acquirement of any mere book-knowledge. The greater part of another person's life may be spent in sordid surroundings, with companions, and in an occupation tending to depress and degrade the better nature. I can easily conceive that it might be the highest duty of such an one to remain ignorant of much useful knowledge, in order to quicken the imagination, to enlarge the tastes and heighten the enjoyments. So that when the day's work is done he may exchange the sordid companions, suggestive only of mean thoughts and low aims, for intercourse with men of purest and noblest nature. Men, too, it may be, who have lived, thought, and written under circumstances as depressing as those in which he lives and works. So there may be some one who regretfully feels that in nature there is nothing which gives to him as to others the keenest pleasure, refreshing him when wearied, encouraging him when downcast. Who sees nothing in the skies save signs of the coming storm, nothing in the trees or flowers, the rivers or the hills, save something relating to his material comfort or discomfort. The best use to which this man could put a library and his reading hours might be to study the works of the great interpreters of Nature, as White of Selborne, Ruskin, or Emerson. And if they should open his eyes so that he can look through Nature up to Nature's God, his gain is immeasurable. Now in neither of these instances is the increase of knowledge the aim set before the reader, but the development of some dwarfed faculty whose growth is necessary to the leading of a noble life. But where the increase of knowledge is the direct end sought, the value of the knowledge in itself must not be that alone which decides one in the choice of books, or incites him to reading, but the use to which it can and ought to be put. An employer of labor, for instance, one who is immediately responsible for the welfare of a large number of workmen, cannot, with any true conception of his duty as a master, devote his time, for reading, to acquiring a knowledge of history, science, or literature if he know nothing of the principles underlying the relations of capital to labor, if he is ignorant of the dangers, the temptations, the needs and rights of his workpeople. However well informed on other subjects, he has read to far less advantage than if his books had been chosen with a direct purpose to fit him to do his duty as a master. So many a parent ought, for a time at least, to read with a view wholly to prepare himself for the wise moral and mental training of his children. And on the other hand, a man should read the history of his country, not merely that he may not blush from conscious ignorance of it, but that, knowing what his heritage of freedom cost to obtain, he may also come to the conviction, that it is not his to enjoy simply, but it is a sacred trust to be accounted for, however humble his position. It could not be more humble than Lincoln's, and yet none can doubt that to the spirit in which he read American history was largely due his future fitness for the great work which God gave him to do to what highest and most profitable use can I put my reading, is the question, then, which each one should ask himself, and according as the answer is, so should the choice be made. It may be that one will read that he may understand better his duties and privileges as a citizen, another that he may be a just master, or an intelligent and faithful workman, still another that she may be a wise parent." while a fourth may have the strong conviction that everything else should be laid aside for the study of one of the masterpieces of the world's literature, that he may develop his higher faculties, and become a man thinking lofty thoughts, and capable of noble deeds. But there is a very large class of readers, especially of a public library, to whom what I have just said will be of but little use and as it is upon them that the choice of books has the greatest influence for good or evil, it is to speak of their interests that I turn with the deepest solicitude. This class may be subdivided into two classes, the children of unintelligent parents, who are capable of directing their reading, and those children who have none to guide them in their choice. As regards the former, one of the greatest dangers of the public library, in my opinion, is that many parents throw off all responsibility as to the books their children read upon those who have charge of the library. A generation ago, all the books, as a rule, which the young read, were bought especially for them by their parents or friends, with more or less care in the selection. Of course, under these circumstances, they had a general knowledge of what their children read. Now a great many parents neither know, nor do they apparently seem to care to know, what books fall into their children's hands, so long as they are from the public library, which is supposed to be a guarantee for their fitness for young readers. Without entering here upon the important question as to what books should or should not be put in a public library, it is enough to say that no intelligent parent, with a right idea of his duty toward his children, can properly lay this responsibility upon persons, however carefully chosen, or however faithful in the discharge of their duties. The capacity of children for receiving good or bad impressions from books differs as their features and forms vary. The same story might prove harmless to one boy, and give a moral twist to another's mind from which he might never recover. One girl might receive from a book a hundred evil suggestions, hopelessly depraving her imagination, while upon another it might not leave a single evil trace. Now, it is not possible for the most scrupulous librarian to discriminate between these two, and refuse the book to the one, and freely give it to the other. And therefore, no library with a large and miscellaneous collection of stories and novels can be safe for children freely to use, except under the careful supervision of their parents. The only safeguard of which I know is for parents to read much with their children, to interest themselves in their books and to talk with them about them. Those stories, for instance, against which there has been such an outcry of late years, would have but small power to hurt that boy to whom a father had taken the pains to point out the absurdities, the unrealities, the false ideas and aims of which they are accused. But in our cities and large towns there can be no doubt that the greater number of the younger readers of a public library belong to the second of the two classes referred to, those who have none to guide them in the choice of their books." The most of these come, of course, simply for amusement, without a thought of any better use of the library. But a few come with other and higher aims. Some, with no specially strong tastes or more than ordinary capacities, merely wish to read that which will cultivate their minds and increase their knowledge, or will be profitable to them in their work. A very few there are, however, in every large town, with intellects of no mean order and strong ambitions, who turn to the library instinctively for that which will satisfy the cravings of their intellects and the promptings of their ambitions. A youth with the instincts of a Lincoln or a Webster comes to read the history of his country. Another, with the latent powers of a Naismith, a Stevenson, or an Arkwright, wants the books which will give full play to his inventive faculties. Another finds a strange and irresistible attraction in natural phenomena, in the habits of plants and animals, in the formation of the rocks and the hills, in the aspects of the skies and the movements of the stars. Now it will depend very much upon the first choice of their books, and the subsequent direction of their reading, whether they will become men useful to the communities in which they live, and add substantial material to the sum of human knowledge as statesmen, inventors, naturalists, or astronomers." The danger is that, for lack of proper guidance and restraint, they will dissipate their mental energies and lose sight of all high aims by too much and too vague reading. If the public library is to be in fact what it is in theory, an educating power second only to the church and the school, and supplementing the work of both, there must be some method devised by which such readers as these may be helped to choose the right books. Without such aid, given continually and systematically, the library fails in the principal end for which it was founded, the elevation and instruction of the people. We might as well turn our children into a schoolhouse fully furnished with books and apparatus, but with only a janitor to see that no injury is done to them, and expect the children to make a wise use of their opportunities to take up and pursue the proper studies without the aid of a master, as to give children the free range of a great library and expect them undirected to make a wise use of its advantages as a means of education. It is therefore, in my opinion, a most pernicious error to encourage young people, of the lower classes especially, to come to a library, and to give them poor stories in the mistaken belief that the taste for reading being developed, they will naturally and surely rise from these to better books. Such a belief is contrary to all our experience of human nature. With careful guidance and restraint, a boy may be brought from the dime novel to read Scott and Macaulay. But without this restraint and guidance, where one will rise, a hundred, a thousand rather, will remain at the level from which they started or more naturally sink to still lower depths. The question is, can anything be done to help the young who throng our public libraries to read well and wisely? Shall these boys and girls, with their unknown powers both for good and evil, be left to grope helplessly amid these treasures of wisdom and knowledge which our libraries contain? Or shall the attempt at least be made to give them a kindly and intelligent guidance? This work, of such incalculable importance, I hasten to say, is already well done to a certain extent by a few librarians in the country. But it is a work which requires time, patience, tact, and insight into character and a very varied and extensive knowledge. It is evident that the librarians who combine these requisites are few in number. It is a work which cannot be done by them as a class, nor can it be done by the ordinary catalogues however skillfully prepared for it is evident that there needs to be some personal knowledge of each reader's capacities in order to help him intelligently and profitably. Nor is it something which the school-teachers, willing though many of them are, can do, except in a limited degree, as many of those who need help are not school-children. There are, however, a few persons in every town fitted by their education and their circumstances in life for this work, and it is to them we must finally appeal." The most practical plan, presenting on the whole the fewest difficulties, seems to be the following. Let those persons, who are willing to make the attempt to give this instruction in reading, choose each a subject, as general history, the history of the United States, science, travels, biography, fiction, or children's stories, and see what their public library contains on these subjects. In due time, notice could be given that all persons wishing help in the choice of books in any of these subjects could be aided by applying to the librarian. He would refer the inquirer to that person who has chosen this subject, who will naturally endeavour to find out something of the character, circumstances, and abilities of the applicant, before selecting the books best fitted in his or her opinion for him to read. No doubt at first there would be a few to apply, and mistakes would be made from lack of experience. But if only one reader was substantially aided, if only one bright youth was rescued from the danger of dissipating his energies by aimless or depraving reading, all the labor would be amply rewarded to say nothing of the benefit which the guide himself, in preparing for his work, would receive." I do not believe, however, that the applicants for guidance would be few, when it was known among the workpeople of our mills, our shops, and stores, among the poor, that every one coming to the library asking for aid would find someone ready, as it were, to take him by the hand and lead him from book to book, so long as he needed help. I am confident that it would be an invaluable service if some one or two persons should take the pains to become acquainted with the character of the books for the children and the novels contained in the library. There are many parents who feel instinctively the truth of the words of F. W. Robertson that a man's character and mind are moulded for good or evil far more by the forms of imagination which surround his childhood than by any subsequent scientific training. Many an anxious but ignorant parent who sees in her boys and girls a craving for books, at which she rejoices with trembling, would turn with heartfelt gratitude—I speak with the fullest confidence because I speak from experience to one who would give them advice as to the books which their children might safely read, and those which they should shun. It is only by some such means as this, that the public library can be made a real educating power for the masses. In far too many places now, it is simply a place where children can get story-books at the public expense. This cannot long continue, and I believe that the great part of the libraries which continue to do this work without an effort to fulfill their higher mission, will surely and inevitably die. As the district school and agricultural libraries died fifty years ago. The responsibility rests with the people of each place where there is a public library, as to which of two ends shall be reached: it may be merely a means for furnishing amusement for an hour, or it may be a central beacon from whence the rays of light shall stream into every house. End of section twenty four.